It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're new to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Really appreciate you tuning in this week and every week right here, wherever you're getting this podcast from. This week is episode 142. We're with Danny Lennon of Sigma Nutrition, and we're talking about chrononutrition. Chrononutrition is basically about how meal timing can impact your health and performance, so we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about post-workout nutrition and much, much more. But before we hop into that, I want to remind everyone we do have a new product over on the Barbell Medicine website. We have the Pain and Rehab Seminar, a virtual seminar from January of 2021. We recorded all the lectures and the question and answer and lightly edited them for formatting purposes, and now they're available for purchase. If you're a health and fitness professional looking to step up your pain game, that is the product for you. Check that out. And in any case, let's hop into this week's podcast with Danny Lennon. Uh, all right, Danny Lennon on the podcast. Uh, how, how do you introduce yourself? If somebody recognizes you in an elevator or a supermarket or whatever, like how do you, what's your, what's your byline? Well, luckily, not too many people recognize me. I try and keep my identity secret. Just, just my, my voice is out there. That's why I don't do these video podcasts. Uh, I, I think the way I would typically now introduce what I do to people is that I have a company called Sigma Nutrition, which produces educational content around evidence-based nutrition, primarily looking at nutritional science and making that understandable, doing that through a few different methods. One is obviously the podcast, which I think is what I'm most well known for. And then also through lectures and seminars, which I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to give. And we also have an online coaching service where there's a number of coaches and a dietitian that work with people one-to-one, -one. Uh, but I no longer do that. My sole role now is in content creation. So I think that's the overview I would probably give people. You're a radio host, effectively. Radio host, yeah, a failed radio host. Yeah, <laughs> just a very bad one. Yeah, maybe people don't recognize your face, but if you ever said anything, they'd be like, hey, I know that voice. I don't know. Yeah, it, it, no, it, it's, it's funny. There was a, a friend of mine now, but one time I, I met him and he, he'd listened to the podcast for a long period of time before we, we'd met in person really and chatted. Uh, but he listened to all his podcasts on like 1.5 times speed, which I think is quite common. So then when we met in person, we started chatting. He said like, this is super weird. It's like, I'm talking to you in slow motion. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was kind Speed of funny. up, Danny. Speed right, up. Yeah. Yeah. What's wrong with you, man? That's the thing, like people say like, yeah, well, I've listened to all your podcasts. I listen to them at like 2x speed. And I was like, yeah, you'll probably go back and listen to it at, like half speed. Like that's probably what you need to do. And it's not like a, I'm not trying to say like, oh, you can't understand our podcasts or, or you know, the mm. material is too complex, but there's a lot in there. And the idea like that you can take it at 2x speed and amass uh, that information, you can like integrate it into your, you know, current fund of knowledge seems unlikely. And I say this as a person who like during my medical training, like many of my colleagues were like, oh yeah, I listened to that lecture at 2X speed. And I'm like, so you just didn't listen to the lecture. There's just so much stuff there that you have to almost like listen, pause. How does that fit into like my worldview or my current like fund of knowledge? And then like unpack it a little bit and then you can like press play again. But people are just like, I just want more. So just faster, faster, faster. And it's like, I don't know if that's the best way to do it. It's a really easy trap to fall into. I mean, I, I used to do the same with books, right? And I think a lot of people do. If I can get through more books, the whole, how many books in a year can I read? Or yeah, if yeah. I read a book a week and over time you learn, actually, no, if you read like 25% of them, but like really read them properly, mm -hmm. you get more. And I think the same is true for podcasts. You could probably listen to half the number of podcasts, but if you listen intently, you'll get more from it. And then there's a second element that you miss out on that. A lot of experts, particularly if they're good at communicating ideas, and the way they articulate things and emphasize certain points is is done in a, I think, a purposeful manner. Mm -hmm. And it's it's just different than if you listen to that at 2x speed, it's not the same as, as someone puts a point across, I think. Yeah. Like if you look at, so I have most of my books now, well, now that I think about it, they're probably, it's probably spread like in almost even like three, like equal uh, groups. One is like Audible, so I listen to stuff while I'm either traveling or whatever. Another is like digital, so like Kindle stuff, and the other is like uh, uh, either paperback or hardback, so like a physical copy. The physical copy stuff are annotated heavily. Like I'm just like reading them and then like either writing something down that helps like 
you know, as the big Lebowski would say, ties the room together. Is that, mm. That's like an active learning kind of thing. Uh, podcasts, I generally will listen to in like short segments and stop them. And then kind of like, I'm almost trying to ask myself a question to like, again, integrate this. And then uh, with the Kindle stuff, I'll like write notes in there, like type notes. And I'm not saying that's the, you know, every book you have to read or you, every podcast you listen to, that's the way to do it. But it's like, if you're really trying to learn like active learning, we know that mm. to be like a better strategy. Uh, if it's just entertainment, that's fine too. Like I'm not trying mm. to tell people how to live their life or whatever, but um, yeah, people will be like, Oh, I listened to this podcast and I have this question. I'm like, honestly, that's what the entire podcast was about. So I'm un unclear as to like what, you know, where did I mess up then as a communicator? So we'll actually probably get there later. But hey, if you're listening to this in 2x speed, my voice is much deeper. It's like a baritone. It's not, Danny has a very pleasant voice, like with the nice accent. You might want to slow it down just to get the acoustically pleasing nuances of her voice. Well, yeah, you're being overly kind to me there, I think. But um, I, I agree. Slow down, people. Can you imagine getting on a podcast that was adversarial? You're like, I'm gonna do a podcast with this person that I strongly dislike. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, Danny's a real piece of shit. I hate him. <laughs> like, yeah. And like state your case for why you're not a piece of shit. Yeah, exactly. I'd right? have to like, defend uh, myself. Like, I actually don't know. I think I kind of agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, just before we move on, uh, do you have some academic chops? Do you want to just list off your little academic resume? I guess from an academic standpoint, I have a master's degree in nutritional sciences, my undergraduate degree was in biology and physics with a concurrent diploma in education. And yeah, that's pretty much it. No, no PhD. So unfortunately not a doctor. I mean, I think uh, that's actually a plus one for you. Honestly, <laughs> doctors, they're the worst. <laughs> they're the worst. Uh, no. So yeah, uh, Danny's not just a dude. Uh, he's got some academic uh, uh, chops and then also obviously the host of Sigma Nutrition Radio and a lot of great content on that website. So we'll plug all that stuff later. But I want to get into the meat and potatoes of this podcast, a topic that we've danced around a little bit um, and then kind of brought up uh, or linked to some information on this on our on our website and podcast and YouTube channel. We've talked about chrononutrition, um, again, mostly in passing. And I think that's more of a function of where Austin and I kind of stand on our knowledge of the research, our kind of like interpretation of that. And since it's not like a pet topic of either of ours, it's, we, we're just not, you know, it's not like a, we don't get updates every time a new paper is published on like chrononutrition. Mm. So like you and Alan definitely have more of a steeping in that. And so I kind of want to talk about it. So first off for the listeners at home, they, they hear the word chrononutrition, they're like, I feel like time's involved and then nutrition, so timed eating. Can you give people a, like an overview of like what chrononutrition actually is? Sure. So I guess probably the simplest way to think of it is like you said, because of that chrono aspect, it's related to time-based phenomena. And we know that there are many things that run in cycles in biology, various different processes that have different periods of time. So if we think of different biological processes, some can have a very short period of time. Um, some can have much longer. So say that a short time period would be one sleep cycle, about 90 minutes, and those keep reoccurring in cycles over and over. Longer ones, you could think of the menstrual cycle, approximately 28 days, plus or minus a number of days. And then we have what's probably going to be most relevant to this conversation is cycles of around 24 hours. We refer to as circadian cycles or circadian rhythms. And so chrononutrition is kind of a branch under chronobiology um, where we're looking at probably kind of bi-directionally, how does when we eat and what nutrients we eat influence some of these um, circadian processes, but then also things that are under a circadian control or ex or show some degree of diurnal variation, does that give us clues about a better way to eat? So as an example of each one would be, we know that insulin sensitivity has a diurnal variation. And so we could ask the question, well, does that mean we should time when we eat most of our carbohydrates based on that? Right? That's just one hypothesis. Then we could look at the other way of, if someone eats uh, meals, let's say during the biological night when we're not quote unquote set up to be do to do so, does that have some influence on us metabolically that could be problematic? So there's those two areas, but quite simply, it's just thinking about how does what we eat and when we eat influence some of these 
uh, circadian processes that then in turn can impact our health. And uh, th there's many areas that we could probably discuss, but probably the one that has most interest behind it right now is time-restricted eating protocols, which were born out of some of this chrononutrition literature. So would you lump the two together, like time-restricted feeding, time-restricted eating, and chrononutrition as like one and the same? Or are there like chrononutrition necessarily incorporates some time-restricted feeding aspect, but not all time-restricted feeding protocols abide by the rules or the or what we know about chrononutrition? Right. Yeah, I think I think that's accurate. I think that time-restricted eating is one protocol that is based on some of this stuff related to uh, chronobiology, but there are other aspects related to food timing and metabolic health that have a circadian basis that aren't related to a protocol where you restrict your feeding window. So a good example there is research looking at, well, what is the impact of night shift workers consuming large meals during that night shift when typically they should be asleep? That's not looking at a and time restricted eating intervention, but I would still put that under this umbrella of chrononutrition. Um, so yeah, it's kind of this larger umbrella uh, that, I, that I think with under that one aspect of it would be time restricted eating. Right. So people are just going to hear this and like, oh, you mean intermittent fasting? And it's like, well, kind of, but probably backwards of what you what you're actually expecting. So I'm not trying to, you know, have a spoiler or a TLDR like in the middle of this thing or the beginning of it, but in general, most intermittent fasting, particularly the popular intermittent fasting methods are like, yeah, you're going to fast from, you know, 9 p.m. to the, the and then into the next day to like noon or one. So your feeding window is one to 9 p.m. Because you're only going to mm -hmm. eat in the afternoon and the evening. Whereas most of the data on chrononutrition, as far as I understand it, actually kind of has that flipped where you would have more of your calories, more of your energy intake earlier in the day. And then it kind of like tapers off as you get closer and closer to not only sundown and nighttime, but also your sleeping window. So it's almost like intermittent fasting flipped around uh, in, in a way. Although, I mean, because again, people will hear this, they hear time-restricted feeding, immediately they jump to that 16-8 intermittent fasting. It's like, eh, not exactly, and maybe backwards of how you're thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, technically you could look at it and on paper, they could be the same, that you could have a time-restricted eating protocol if that was a a late window, let's say that 1 p.m. to 9, then that's the same time-based period as a, a lean gains type approach or, or whatever daily intermittent fasting. But I suppose the, the purpose behind them is different, that most of the time intermittent fasting is done with the idea of I can save my calories later in the day because I prefer eating them, or it's just a convenient way to restrict calories. Whereas a lot of the time-restricted eating, at least it was first kind of brought around to hypothesize to have health benefit because we're trying to fit that kind of caloric intake within, let's say, daylight hours. Now, within that, there's a number of different interventions that have been studied. So some have been where you have an early window. So some have been like 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. You have ones that then are late, like one that you give the example of. Others then have kind of compressed both ends where you delay breakfast and then pull up the final meal, um, where you have a shorter feeding window. Um, but you've kind of compressed from both ends. So all of those have been looked at and all of those are technically time-restricted eating. Uh, but yeah, where they were first born out of, I suppose, is, is the key difference. Um, and then with intermittent fasting, you can have an intermittent fasting that goes beyond daily intermittent fasting protocols. And actually, mo right. and actually most of the literature would be related to like alternate day fasting or 5-2 uh, type setup, um, et cetera. So... Um, yeah, just a few just differences for people to be aware of. Yeah. Uh, so just as an aside, the internet is wild with respect to intermittent fasting, particularly like the alternate day stuff or like five, two, um, where people will eat for five days off for two days. It, it, people will take like a mouse study or, you know, some sort of animal model and be like, see, look, look, they, you know, fed, they fed ad libitum for five days and then they fasted for two days. And there's like this one DNA methylation marker that shows maybe their health and longevity would be improved. It's a surrogate marker. It's not like they're testing their actual, like, you know, lifespan or other objective mar uh, metrics of, of health. And, um, and then somebody will make an Instagram post and be like, see, you got to do it. This is it. This is the key to like living longer. And it's like, where did you get that from? That that logical leap is so big. It's like you're jumping over the Grand Canyon here with, 
you know, one mechanistic study. So, um, yeah, what I'd like to do, there's a weird, uh, sorry, just to jump in yeah. because it's funny. It reminded me of like, it's basically this weird Venn diagram of, um, people who really are into that kind of longevity space tend to also love fasting for obvious reasons, mm -hmm. because that's where a lot of that mouse data is. And then you have this other kind of group that are looking to like biohack themselves. Then you've got the whole Silicon Valley group and it's all like converges in on like fasting is yeah. the cure to everything. It's quite funny. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's just like a repackaging of some of these like pro longevity like sort of folks where first you were looking for like the fountain of youth, you know, and it had to be a supplement or some sort of dietary, you know, thing that you weren't, that was, that was rare and in some weird jungle and you had to like go find it to like, you know, live a long life. And they're like, ah, oh, well maybe it's not that it's gotta be fasting now. And it's, and then you try to seek out what are the different hormonal changes or, or, you know, DNA level changes that are happening. And it's like, yeah, okay. Well, so what we need is like this data looking at actual human longevity to kind of like really suss that out. But so what I want to do is when we talk about chrononutrition, um, we can kind of, I think, parse the evidence or separate the evidence into like what I, what I would call like rationalist kind of like arguments in support of it uh, and maybe even against it on some levels where it's like we have these mechanistic data like that kind of showed maybe this would be beneficial and then also like empirical uh, data like, yeah, actually we tested this in a specific group of patients or subjects, you know, human data and uh, here's where we stand. So if you were trying to summarize the evidence from like a mechanistic side, like how does this thing work or at least how do we think it works right now? Um, what do you think like the strongest evidence is for arranging your dietary pattern around the clock, the circadian rhythm? Yeah. So I, I think the, in terms of what actual outcomes have the most evidence, I think most relate to metabolic health. Um, cause oftentimes people think like jump to body composition first of all, and we can maybe discuss that in a moment, but I think metabolic health in terms of th things like blood glucose, fasting insulin, so on, um, is, has a lot of data behind it. And probably I think where someone could make the strongest case for it. And there's probably a number of at least mechanistic reasons why this seems to be the case. So we can look at some of those variations across the day, that diurnal variation that I mentioned earlier that happens with insulin sensitivity, where it's highest in the morning and dips down throughout the day. You tend to see a similar variation across the day in beta cell function. So that's again related to insulin secretion. Uh, we already know that at biological night or close to biological night. And certainly the deeper you get into it, for example, again, people eating during the middle of the night, that eating carbohydrates and dietary fat tends to lead to worse postprandial responses. So in other words, your blue, blood glucose goes higher and stays higher for longer. You get the kind of uh, a poor response in terms of free fatty acids and bloodstream. So we know it's probably better to not do that. So in other words, taking that same meal consumed at 3 p.m. versus 3 a.m., you get a completely different response um, postprandially. So it's not just about macros across the day, that there are differences here, um, at least at that level of extreme. So I think some of those um, changes in uh, insulin sensitivity, beta cell function, um, postprandial metabolism, would make sense then for, okay, over the long term, would we see someone have a better metabolic health profile if they were, let's say, not consuming a lot of their food intake late at night, if they're having maybe um, skewing a bit more of that to earlier parts of the day? Um, and what early is in this context would be another big conversation. You could maybe make that case about carbohydrates. Um, again, just on the premise that, well, if they're having a large amount of their carbohydrates toward the end of the day, could you see um, possibly a worse response? And again, this is where probably a lot of the individual context comes in. So if we're looking at someone with pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, then this metabolic health stuff is obviously both more relevant, but an intervention which is relatively simple to roll out could have a big bang for your buck, which just might not be worth doing for other people where you actually aren't going to see much difference. So the improvements in some of those markers, of course, always are going to compare to what someone's baseline is at. So um, yeah, I, I think there are some of the mechanisms, if I was picking up the question correctly, that's where I would probably 
Yeah. Hang my hat. Yeah. So like just as a as a summary, basically Danny's saying that because there are data showing that you have it, uh, an increase in you know insulin sensitivity and beta cell sensitivity, those are the cells within the pancreas that actually make and secrete insulin in response to a meal. Um, all these sort of mechanistic studies suggest or would suggest like, hey, if you move carbohydrates or other uh, dietary components that really rely on insulin to like, you know, uh, uh, deal with the, the dietary intake, if you move them to earlier in the day, you, you might do better. Uh, but the caveat there being like, this assumes that there's some sort of metabolic health issue going on. You have pre-diabetes, you're on that trajectory, you have, you know, type two diabetes, you have, you know, diagnosed insulin resistance, or you're getting really close to that, we actually need a helping hand. Um, and, and whereas other people who are metabolically healthy, you don't have any of those things because you're adaptable in a way you can kind of tolerate all of these things. You don't need to do that. It's not going to make you live any longer if it's not helping you. That's the, that's the whole idea here. So, um, I have parsed through much of the clinical outcome data on, uh, particularly individuals with type two diabetes or diagnosed pre-diabetes on this and that the data actually, I mean, it's not nothing. <laughs> there's some, there's some decent stuff there. Uh, I think at least it, it makes it an interesting case provided, I think, and, and I'll be curious to get your take on this, provided somebody's dietary pattern first and foremost is like compatible with health promotion, meaning like the energy intake in some is like, you're getting close, you're on the right track, you're getting uh, lots of health promoting foods. So that'd be lean proteins, fruits and vegetables, all that sort of stuff. Effectively, this isn't a way to like hack your body so you can eat Twinkies and, you know, right. <laughs> a bunch yes. of, and way too many calories all day. That's, that's not what we're saying. But it's like, if somebody's, their dietary pattern, their dietary behaviors uh, are, are on, tra- on track, this might give them a leg up Otherwise, if they've got something going on metabolically, like we said, pre-diabetes, insulin resistance, type two diabetes, uh, as far as like s- specific health outcomes, what do we see? Like, what's the, where's the data the strongest on this? Mm. Yeah, j- just in relation to that point you mentioned, because I think that is important. That I, I want to be clear that anytime I make a point that seems like I'm let's say pro <laughs> thinking about meal timing, it's and I always say this: it doesn't supersede any of those fundamentals that people have probably heard on this podcast before that by far and away, are you consuming an appropriate amount of um, energy? What is your macronutrient intake? What is your overall food quality, dietary patterns, et cetera? Those things are all crucial. And yeah, it's not a way to work around that. However, as a kind of aside and the kind of interesting, if we were to think about rolling this out to a large number of people, particularly those groups of people who maybe most need it, there is some of the interventions where they've given people simply only the direction to restrict that feeding window and not make any dietary changes um, in terms of the foods they typically want to pick or how much to eat. And you do tend to see um, improvements. Now, there's obviously a few clear caveats, which you could probably guess here. People tend to reduce their overall caloric intake. That tends to lead to weight loss. That tends to improve some of these uh, biomarkers. So um, piece uh, piecing that apart is is difficult. However, if we were thinking about how can we get people in the average population that maybe don't have a good nutrition education, don't have time to work on one-on-one with a dietitian, a relatively simple way to at least start losing some body weight that may have health benefit, then some degree of time restriction could be a, an intervention that could be useful for that reason. Um, but as a general rule, I would completely agree with what you said of it, this this in no way supersedes any of the other major components around a healthy dietary pattern. Um, your question actually was in relation to uh, outcomes. So I think, uh, like I said, there's there's good data on looking at things like um, blood glucose, uh, fasting insulin, some of those glycemic markers. You tend to see probably most often with time-restricted eating, looking at weight loss. Um, and that's pretty standard across most intermittent fasting interventions anyway. But again, it's simply because it's causing someone to reduce their overall caloric intake. So I don't think it's doing anything magical. Um, there is kind of some, or that there, someone could put across a hypothesis that it could lead to more weight loss through increasing someone's energy expenditure. And I think I, I may have mentioned this in the article before, kind of based on this idea that with differences in uh, meal timing, 
um, across the day, you can, you may see differences in diet-induced thermogenesis, or at least a couple of studies suggested that. So therefore, people this idea, well, if there's a big difference, or there would have to be a big difference in this energy we expend after digesting a meal, could that add up to be significant enough to lead to differential amounts of weight loss at the same degree of calories? But that doesn't seem to have really played out in anything that I can see. Um, and I think... Alan would be someone to talk to this about because in some of the work that they've been doing now that I'm not sure has been published yet, um, they kind of tried to investigate why there was some data suggesting there was this difference in diet-induced thermogenesis. And I think it might come down to some of the methods that were being used. Anyway, that's just an aside. So really you see weight loss due to decrease in overall caloric intake. You see in cases where there's not weight lost, you tend to see improvements in glycemic markers most commonly, so blood glucose, um, insulin, and, and so on. Um, some other um, ones you might be see like triglycerides or uh, cholesterol. So um, they'd be some of the primary ones uh, that I would have seen in, in interventions, uh, but yeah. I could be missing a few. Uh, yeah, I think I also saw some on A1C, which is another glycemic marker. Right. But um, yeah, the idea is that if either the weight match, the weight loss is matched between two groups, or there is no weight loss in both groups, one group doing this sort of, we'll call it the chrononutrition plan, and the other group doing a normal, a more standard kind of eating schedule. And when I say standard, I mean, the typical Western, you know, industrialized eating pattern, which is you wake up in the morning, you eat breakfast, you eat lunch, you eat dinner. That's like your largest meal of the day later at night. And then you go to bed. Um, if you match, if you compare those two groups and the calorie intake is similar or even controlled. Um, and the only thing you're trying, the only variable that you're really changing is when people are eating the majority of their calories. It seems like those individuals who eat more of their energy early in the day tend to have better markers of fasting blood sugar, fasting insulin, insulin response to a meal, which is, you know, uh, all, all good things. And then a lower hemoglobin A1C to the extent that that leads to really important outcomes like reduced incidence of major adverse cardiovascular event or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk or other complications of diabetes or insulin resistance. We don't know. Because like the study, mm. they just don't go on for that long. And I mean, we're talking, right. you'd have to follow people for years and years and years. And then more and more confounders kind of go in there. doesn't mean it can't be done, but it's like, that's, that's kind of where we're at. Mm. Um, so my opinion, as far as the strength of this evidence goes, is it's interesting and the clinical data is not nothing. And I think if you have somebody eating a dietary pattern that's otherwise health promoting and we got all these, you know, beneficial behavioral changes on board and we want to kind of take this, you know, turn this up to 11. Well, maybe we start playing with some chrononutrition because again, the evidence is not nothing. Um, I don't know if it's the strongest evidence we have for like a behavioral change. It probably wouldn't mm. be where I started, but I don't think you're saying that either. You're not mm. saying, Hey, you know what? Don't worry about energy intake. Don't worry about your overall dietary pattern. Let's just shift your calories to earlier in the day. Right. Although, the devil's advocate would say something like, but if you did do that, perhaps you would eat less calories and maybe that might be beneficial for weight loss, but that's kind of a, uh, you know, maybe that's a shrug emoji. I, did I capture sure. your kind of take on this or do you think it's stronger than what I'm giving it credit for? No, I think that would be, be pretty accurate. And I think actually one of the points I mentioned to people um, at the end of um, the, the lecture I gave on this, and, and I think the article I, I wrote on Greg's site was that, if trying to make some of these changes in meal timing based on some of these ideas we're getting from the chrononutrition research means that it, it's harder for you to adhere to those fundamentals that we've just discussed, then don't do it, right? If trying to change your meal timing around then leads you to, for whatever reason, consume more calories or more difficult to eat your protein or something like that, um, or other health promoting behaviors, then it's having a net negative despite what your timing is doing. So one is, does it fit in with those? Is it easy to do? And then secondly would be in terms of is it worth doing? That's again, an individual question of where is someone at right now? And, and so if you have someone that is say pre, uh, has pre-diabetes and is trying everything right now before their next checkup to not have this thing progress, then you probably want to throw more things at it, even if we're not sure 
uh, if they're going to have a major benefit or not, right? It'd be worth trying. For someone else, it, it may not be relevant. And then there's also other caveats, particularly to a lot of the people listening to this podcast around resistance training and exercise that further make it less of a, a problem that we could maybe talk about. But yeah, I think you captured that quite well in your summary. Good. As long as I'm not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I can't argue with a doctor and they're always yeah, right. Well, no, at least <laughs> I, I tell people cause they go, they go, how do you feel about being wrong? And I'm like, I feel great. It means I learned something, you know, like so I'm, I've said plenty of stuff that is now embarrassing in hindsight, but the, the whole thing is like, if you're wrong, you end up learning something. And if given enough time, I expect to be wrong about most things I've said, mm. maybe not in like the totality of what I've ever said, but like, I'm, we're going to learn new things and new reasons why maybe previous ideas were, you know, correct or good or whatever. Uh, but like, yeah, if enough time passes by, I expect most of the things that I've said to at least have mm. some element of a falsehood in there. And I'm, I'm totally fine with that. Like right. you just, you, that allows you to temper your confidence when you say something and say, you use words like may or likely, or, you know, yes. sometimes or, uh, oh, you know, yeah. Uh, I guess, I think, uh, you know, get, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, sorry to cut across you, but I, I think one important thing that I, we probably should mention is that right at the start, because we said there's many things that fall under this umbrella of chrononutrition, and we're not just talking about time-restricted eating, I think the same would come to when we're talking about what is the, or how much confidence I would have in a certain dietary habit, having good evidence or not. So for example, of what is the best way to distribute our energy across the day? What is that best timing window? Like we, we still don't really know some of these things, how much of a difference is going to have. There's some aspects of it though, that we're very clear on. For example, eating during biological night is definitely leads to a worse postprandial response than during the day. So it depends on what question we're asking of how much uh, confidence we have, but yeah, your, uh, your point is, is well taken. Yeah. Maybe don't wake up in the middle of the night and eat something. It's probably, it's probably not doing you any favors. I know that people do do that. Cause they're like, mm -hmm. I can't go to sleep cause I'm hungry. And it's like, I don't, I mean, hunger is a pretty complex sort of, you know, issue. It's not just biology. There's other factors. And if you get in the habit of eating in the middle of the night, it's probably not great for you from a health perspective. And, and, and in addition to just an energy intake, perspective but mm. um yeah the how to distribute the nutrition across the day that's a tbd thing we're, we're like we're, we're gonna work on it when i say we i mean you but <laughs> it's gonna it's one of those questions is gonna have to be ferreted out i think uh, you raised uh, uh, an interesting question about how does exercise kind of fit into this that we'll i uh, want to get to next but just briefly the other part of this this isn't like the first element of chrono nutrition that's ever been kind of put forth and actually supported. There's a, additional data on like similar meal timing from day to day where people like if they eat around the same time um, each day, they tend to do better than people with very variable um, uh, uh, meal timing. And, and part of that, it has to do with biology, this sort of like rhythm sort of thing. And I feel like there's like a neurohormonal kind of axis that like either gets used to or adapts to your sort of meal frequency and, and everything else, but then also the behavioral aspect of this, like if you eat at similar times in similar environments and similar, you know, sort of settings, you're likely better able to recognize appetite signals, you know, uh, eating similar amounts and ultimately helping to control your energy balance, uh, but without really trying, you mm -hmm. know, you don't have to like actively think about like, well, how many bites was that? And what is the energy density of this food? You're like, I'm kind of doing the same thing day in and day out. My dietary RPE is low right now. It's like if, if listeners are familiar with like the Daniel Kahneman thinking fast and slow, this is like a thinking fast sort of thing. You just like, you don't have to consciously like, you know, tally up calories. So there's, mm -hmm. this isn't the first thing, but it's an, an additional layer of nuance. Um, with respect to exercise, what if, all right, somebody's listening to this and they're like, all right, well, I'm not, I, I'm metabolically healthy by your guys, your definition, the, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm kind of curious, maybe there's a element of, uh, of body composition or, you know, longevity that I could maybe, maybe, uh, uh leverage here with, uh, if I tweak my, my, the way I spread my energy density out, but I train in the afternoon, Danny, like what, what I train at four o'clock after work, you know, so, so what now are you saying, uh, I don't post-workout nutrition is not important. Right. So th this is a, this is a, a really useful point because it, it doesn't completely throw out all of the arguments around chrononutrition and we can certainly get to those, but in particularly because we've mentioned 
the role of like insulin and the beta cells. And therefore we're kind of worried about these glucose responses late in the day from consuming carbohydrates. Then typically someone, when they have a afternoon or evening training session in that post-workout window, they're probably going to have a decent sized meal and they tend to put some, uh, a decent amount of carbohydrate there. Well, the good thing with resistance training particularly, um, is that after a bout of resistance training, you have movement of these glucose transporters, GLUT4 um, transporters from the inside of a cell to the surface of the cell, and it essentially allows glucose disposal to take place without the without insulin being required. So it's an insulin-independent process. And so what that means is even if we have technically this decline in insulin sensitivity across the day, um, this diurnal variation, that if you've done some resistance training, then in the couple of hours after that, consuming glucose isn't necessarily the same degree of uh, a problem, or you're not going to see the same kind of uh, accentuated response because you can effectively dispose of that glucose into muscle cells because of that mm. movement of those GLUT4 transporters. So that's just kind of one like a mechanistic way of why uh, that person doesn't need to be worried about their kind of glucose response, those carbohydrates, even if they're having them in the evening, if they've preceded that with exercise. Um, and then beyond that, there's obviously kind of just longer term benefits of exercise generally that's going to make someone more metabolically healthy. So that'd be one that I think particularly for uh, this audience is probably most relevant. Um, whether there's still a benefit to thinking about chrononutrition stuff, I would say there probably is just in terms of are you saving up all your calories to put at the very end of the day before you go to bed just because you like eating a large meal could you see some benefit maybe to pushing some of those calories earlier in the day i i could we could hypothesize definitely there could be a case for that it's worth trying i think um but in, in general in, in relation to that kind of glycemic response that's one of the benefits of training yeah. And uh, just to wrap this, wrap that thought in a bow, uh, I'm not worried about your post-workout nutrition from like a very specified protocol that you must do. Otherwise, all of your gains turn to dust. Like the data on post-workout anabolic signaling, um, there is a lot there. And uh, having recently completed this nutrition book, um, particularly with a, uh, uh, with a section on straight up to sports nutrition, I am not convinced that the post-workout feeding is of, you know, of a high consequence outside of periods of time where you have limited time to recover, meaning like a multiple bout sort of training day, or like you're going to compete in the next four to six hours. And even that I think is more of a hydration, glycogen replenishment sort of standpoint. If you're going, if you're uh, exercising at very high intensities to muscle, you know, to exhaustion, if you're just resistance training for like an hour and a half, two hours, even two, whatever, even a you know marathon session, three hours, but it's just all lifting weights. I have zero concerns about like what you're eating in the next, uh, you know, few hours, provided that again, throughout a 24 hour period, your calorie intake is appropriate. Your protein intake is appropriate. You're not on a super low carb ketogenic type diet and you get enough fluids in. I mean, I, honestly, provided you're going to train in, you know, 24 hours or more later, if that's the case, your body's going to do a great job of, you know, doing what it needs to do to like get your gains. Uh, are you going to get more muscle mass, more strength? If you follow this very specific protocol, shoulder shrug emoji, you guys can't see mm. my, <laughs> my expression. <laughs> I want that to be the case because that means that's an additional lever for us to pull to like jack up performance. I just don't know that to be the case. And I can't confidently claim for sure. Mm. Um, you, yeah, it's like, for example, with creatine as a dietary supplement. Yeah. You might get, you know, a couple percentage, you know, points of improvement relative to somebody who's not taking creatine. If you're a responder, if we're talking about caffeine, we're talking about, you know, less than half of that. If we're talking about all these other supplements, we're talking about less than half of that. And then if we're talking about post-workout protocols, as far as like a specific protein, carb, you know, fat ratio, like I, I don't even know that that registers outside of like error, mm. you know? And so, so my whole take on this is like, if I had a person who was insulin resistant, and so if you're at home and you're like, I don't know if I have insulin resistance, not that anybody sounds like that, but it's just like, <laughs> that is my standard, generic like, guy. I, I, generic, generic guy. Yeah. Uh, I, 
uh, uh, which is a very common, it would be a very common diagnosis if more people were actually screening for folks. So the criteria we use is the adult treatment panel three. Basically, if you have uh, three or more of the following criteria, like yo, you've got insulin resistance. And if you're close to these values, you're on that trajectory. So if you're a male of European descent uh, or, or otherwise Caucasian, that's how you identify. If you have a 40 inch waist or higher, like that's one risk factor. If it's uh, women, I think it's uh, 34 and a half inches. Um, if you have uh, elevated triglycerides, if you have low uh, HDL, if you have uh, high blood pressure, or if you have an impaired fasting glucose, so fasting glucose greater than 100, um, you, you know, three or more of those, that's, it. That's, that's how we diagnose insulin resistance. And the idea of using the screening panels to identify folks with insulin resistance prior to developing diabetes or prediabetes, which is based on their hemoglobin A1C or other sort of organ uh, uh, damage and, and dysfunction. So um, if you're trending that way, the chrononutrition thing would probably be more important relatively than your post-workout shake or your mm -hmm. post-workout meal outside of like how that affects your dietary adherence at large. Um, anyway, mm -hmm. if, so what I mean there is like, if you prefer to have your meal, your dinner to be the largest meal of your day that works for you from like a social setting, from a adherence setting, like standpoint, whatever, uh, the best way to tolerate that is going to be to work out prior. And if that, and if that's the way you kind of wrap everything together, cool. Uh, but if you're not really exercising regularly and you do have some of these uh, markers of insulin resistance or you actually have prediabetes or diabetes, well, I would say chrononutrition should be on your on your list. It mm. might not be the first one or two things I'm looking at, but it's on there for sure. Uh, but if you if you work out maybe we, and you work out in the afternoon, maybe this is just less of a, a concern. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic point because especially for, like you say, most people that are going to be lifting weights, even like semi-seriously or even like elite level powerlifters, right? And you take a frequency of like four to six times a week, let's say. Given that, um, if someone is worried about changing the timing of some of these nutrients because they think they need to have a huge, let's say carbohydrate-based meal after training, it's just like, no, you don't actually, you know, that's, that's not the reason not to do it. Um, and like, there are obviously different cases like I, that you already mentioned, if you have an MMA fighter that's training multiple times a day, very glycolytically demanding training sessions, then yeah, post-workout carbs after that first session are important because you need to replenish glycogen for a session five hours later. But for, if you're training once a day, just, and especially if it's like resistance training, like just doesn't matter. Um, so yeah. And, and that window of time, even for a protein, like you say, is much longer than I think people would guess. So yeah, many, many hours, mm -hmm. many, many hours, even up to, you know, if you really it just really depends how you define like that anabolic window, if we're going to define the anabolic window as like an increase in muscle protein synthesis rates in response to muscle protein or like dietary protein, it's up to 48 hours, maybe even a little longer, depending on someone's training status and previous dietary intake. So yeah, you don't rush home. Don't like, you know, get a speeding ticket on the way home to get your shake in. You know, there was, there was actually a guy at not the gym I'm training at now, uh, but a previous gym who would like right at like last rep bars still loaded, like in the rack or whatever, like would very hurriedly scurry to his gym bag, get out this shake. And honestly, I don't know how much water was there. It looked like one of those like one liter or maybe one and a half liter like containers <laughs> with a lot of stuff in there. Like who's just, I don't know. I don't know. And he would fill it up and he would just sit there and just for the next 15 minutes, just slam this thing down. And I was like thinking in my head, I was like, that seems just uncomfortable. Yeah. Just like I'm grossed out just watching this, this happen. But then I thought, you know, who am I to, who am I to judge? Maybe four hours from now, he's got another resistance training session. I don't think so, but maybe <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but I mean, uh, he's, he's not going far enough in my opinion. I mean, really what he should be doing is starting that process after he's done his main compound work and before yes. he gets into his accessories to account for the time for digestion. So that yep. it really kicks in. Um, yeah, yeah, doing, yeah. Doing curls while you're bloated out with like 100 grams yeah. of maltodextrin. Well, that's the other interesting thing. Like, if you were worried about like short term performance because you're training multiple times per day, your post workout protocol, it wouldn't be like a single shake, uh, depending on what else you had to do. If you had somebody who literally all they did was train their professional athlete, it'd be like, all right, we're going to have, you know, 
10 grams of protein, 25 grams of carbs, some sodium, maybe a little bit of caffeine, uh, a handful of other things potentially in the shake. And, and we're going to meet this out like every 15 to 20 minutes for like the next, you know, some, some period of time, uh, to not only, uh, like rehydrate, but also max out glycogen synthesis, resynthesis rates and everything else without kind of overwhelming the system and mm-hmm. not having to like it, the digestion issue, the gut as this athletic organ is like, it's not that it's finicky or like not a robust, resilient sort of thing that we have. It's just like, if you're trying to really crank it up to 11, well, there's specific ways to do this. And it's not like slam your liter and a half <laughs> protein <laughs> shake in one setting and let everything happen. Because, and, and here's how you know that it, uh, I had this client who was like, he was big into post-workout nutrition. Like that was, his, he, I mean, I multiple emails back and forth. Like, what can I put in a post-workout shake? And I was really trying to like assage his fears. Like, Hey man, you don't, you really don't need it, but if you like it, like, here's what I would do. And then he kept reporting like, man, when I slam this thing down, like 20 minutes later, I'm in the bathroom. It's like a very big bowel movement. Like, what's that about? I'm like, so it's called gastric dumping. What's happening is you're like taking in all of this food and your stomach goes, oh my gosh, that's way too much. What are you doing? And then when it likes, it sends a signal to the, to the colon and say, Hey, get everything else out of here. We got a lot coming. And, uh, yeah, so that's what, what's happening. And he's like, so I should like slow down is what you're saying. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> it's a good idea. A bit. <laughs> yeah. It seems, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It depends. Depends how solid your plumbing is, but, uh, <laughs> right. He, he might like the gastric dumping, you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> he might be a fan. <laughs> yeah. Clean you out. You don't need an enema if you can have some gastric dumping going on. <laughs> um, okay. So to wrap, to wrap up the Corona nutrition bit, people wanted to like implement this. What would be your kind of, you know, top few points that you think are, are important here? Yeah, as some typical simple heuristics that I tend to give people if they wanted to try this for themselves just to see if they feel different or it makes any noticeable difference. Probably the first place to start is if you consume a large amount of your intake late at night, you might want to maybe trial changing that and pushing more of those calories particularly those from carbohydrates and fats to an earlier part of the day. And if you do want to consume uh, something close to the onset of sleep, then probably a higher protein option would be would be better. Um, second, if they want to think about some of the time-restricted eating protocols, then we don't have a best answer for like what is the optimal, if there even is one, in terms of a eating window. So just start with some degree of restriction and see if you actually feel better with that. In other words, does it actually help you adhere to a good overall dietary pattern or not? For some people, they find it is useful. It gives them some degree of structure. Um, we know that the average person in the population is eating between like 15 to 16 hours of the day. If you shrink that down to 12, that's very manageable, I think, for most people. Um, so yeah, you eat from eight to eight or something like that. Um, and then just see uh, how that goes. I think that would be a good starting point. Um, and then I think having a good consistency from day to day in your meal timings um, and probably meal frequency is a, a relatively good idea because again, it, from a behavioral standpoint that you mentioned already, the, you can keep a similar structure. And then there's also some of that data from a metabolic standpoint that it can be good to have the kind of same timing and same frequency day to day versus a more erratic eating pattern. So they'd be a few places to, to start that I think are don't really have any major risks um, and are easy places to start. And then if they're not good for someone or it makes adherence too difficult um, or they don't want to do it, then fine. But they'd be a few easy heuristics, I think. I love it. Danny Lennon, Sigma Nutrition Radio. You crushed it. You did You did good. You did good. I think I bored people probably more than likely, but uh, yeah. What you don't know is there's actually a laugh track that I put in in post-production. So people like... There you go. It <laughs> breaks it up. I uh, love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'll p- actually put a link to the article you posted on Stronger by Science website. But where else on the internet can people find you, interact with you? What's your, uh, give us the list. Sure. So I would say go to sigmanutrition.com. There you can find pretty much all our content, particularly in written format. We are doing a series of what we're calling Sigma Statements, which is basically a a comprehensive overview on certain topics related to nutritional science that are often confusing or of conflicting information. Um, So 
Uh, we've covered things like diet and lipids, red meat, dairy, um, immune function, etc. cetera. Uh, so I'd check those out if people like reading articles. Uh, then the podcast is Sigma Nutrition Radio, available on all places you can find podcasts. And then on Instagram, I'm Danny Lennon underscore Sigma. And on Twitter, it's Nutrition Danny. And any of those places, people can check it out. I thought you said Nutrition Daddy. And I said... Oh, that'd um, be so much better. Yeah, I feel oh, like... I need to check just, if that's there. <laughs> if it's If it's not taken, you need it. I think I need to go there on Instagram as well. That would be, be legit. <laughs> yeah. I just made a bunch of t-shirts that say barbell zaddy on them. And I'm not, I, I'm really excited for how that's going to turn out when I, when I post that. Uh, Danny, thanks as always for being here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I really appreciated it. Uh, thank you for having me. It's been a, a pleasure and an honor. So thanks for, for uh, asking me on. All right, that's a wrap on episode 142 with Danny Lennon of Sigma Nutrition. Big thanks to Danny Lennon for coming on the podcast. I've linked all of his contact info and his articles that we talked about during the podcast in the description below, so check that out. Before you leave, wherever you're getting this podcast from, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, and we really appreciate the support. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you guys later. on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.